now that we've got Upwork and Uber and all the rest of the gig stuff, and we've got AI and we've got outsourcing, careers are out the window largely and being replaced by people who are looking for the right gig. And bosses who are surprised by this have not been paying attention. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It is so well hidden by the negative noise in our media that I'm calling that wave a conspiracy of goodness. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you're part of that wave. You're probably a remarkably important giver, doer, and helper in your community and circles. And the guests on this podcast will help you with inspiration and joy and ideas about how to continue that super important role in society right now. So welcome. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, host of this podcast and founder of the Mothership website at The Goodness Exchange. There you'll have instant access to remarkably positive news that's just not rising to the top of the internet for us. Articles, interviews, videos, and links to newsworthy insight and innovation going completely uncelebrated in some cases. You are absolutely right to hold out hope for humanity. It is still an amazing world out there. And on this podcast, we're going to introduce you to some of the people making it that way. So we can get started on that right now with our guest, Seth Godin. Welcome, Seth. Thanks, Doc. Thanks for doing this. And thanks for having me. Well, we're, um, I'm going to give people a little bit of your bio, but I, I can never contain the scope in a few minutes of your work. Um, Seth is, in much of the business world, considered the ultimate in entrepreneur and social innovator. For over 30 years, his zone of genius has sent culture in new directions, where potential was just waiting to be discovered. To, I put it really plainly when I talk to people about this interview um, that says have a knack for recognizing the places in the big picture that deserve our attention next. And then he offers a lot of fresh ideas that seem to be sort of counterintuitive twists at first to um, new ways of thinking about the gaps and the opportunities out there. So leaps are possible for everyone. Just to give people a, just a small smattering of, of the... Um, goodness that Seth has brought in the world in the last 30 years. He's the author of 20 best-selling books, maybe more. Um, he has a popular solo blog, um, maybe at one point the most popular solo blog in the world. There's five TED Talks. I could go on and on. His, he's famous for simply saying, go make a ruckus. And I absolutely love that uh, sentiment. And that's why we're here today, because Seth is making a ruckus now with a new book that just came out called The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. Now, you know, I keep track of Seth's um, daily blog every single day, so I could see this coming. But you are starting to see quite some time ago a new era in the world of work and a new generation of workers. In this sort of time of resignations and reimagining work, it's possible to see a fork in the road. So I hope that we'll spend the rest of the time learning about that fork and all the new choices that we have. So thanks, thanks so much, Seth. Bring it on, let's talk about it. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about this concept of what makes a job the best job ever. Well, you know, if you ask somebody, what's the best job you ever had? Everybody has an answer to that question. 
And so I asked 10,000 people, I gave them 14 choices and I listed some things that bosses think like I got paid a lot. I didn't get fired. Those are the two ways bosses run their, their daily operation. But then I listed a whole bunch of other things. And what I discovered is that no matter which one of 90 countries people were answering from, the answers kept being the same. I accomplished more than I thought I could. People treated me with respect. I was proud of the work I did. Well, that seems so obvious. But if that's the case, then why aren't more jobs like that? Why do we insist on treating people like machines, like resources, like uh, mushrooms to be kept in the dark, when in fact, we could do better by doing better? And it's, and it's possible that this job, whatever job we have right now, could be the best job we ever had? Well, I think it's imperative that it is because okay. we don't get tomorrow over again. So everyone has to work. We have to put a food, o- food on the table, roof over our head. But you don't have to work here. You don't have to work on this. So at some level, it's voluntary. Your choice of where you work. And so why not talk to the others? have a conversation about it, discover how bringing humanity to the work we do actually benefits the very people who have hired us to do the work. But talk to us in general about what we'd have to normalize if we, if we had this kind of working life. Well, let me give you a little bit of an analogy. If you spend four hours a day on Twitter and TikTok, mm-hmm. it's extremely likely that you're going to be sad and afraid. So you could just stop using those services, but people don't because they've been optimized to suck us into a system. Well, if you work at a job where you have enough agency to start a book club and have five others in the organization join you if they want to once a week, that choice will make your day better. That choice will turn you into a leader. The boss didn't instruct you to do it. If they did, it wouldn't be the same thing. And so, no, you are not responsible for your boss's boorish behavior. You are not responsible for the race to the bottom that so many organizations engage in. But you are responsible for what you engage in, what you encourage, what you say when you're in one of those horrible meetings. Because if everyone's just sitting there taking notes and surviving yet another Zoom call where people are taking attendance, well, then don't be surprised if that's going to happen again. And while we still have this agency, before it's completely outsourced and AI'd, this is a moment to stand up and say, you know what, I don't have to work here, but if you want me to work here, this is the promise I will make to you, and this is the promise I need you to make to me. Let's get real or let's not play. That's a powerful statement. And, and you know, I'm a boss, and I, and I feel like I work for about 4,000 people, <laughs> and I can hear that. I, I don't think those are hard words to hear. If, there, if it's done in a sort of like, there's a part of the book where you talk about assume good intentions or give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Yeah. I mean, we're not saying that what you need to do is demand that everyone sit around the campfire singing the songs you want sung and that you should get Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Prime Fridays off. What I am saying to people is we should make a promise. We should take responsibility. And then- We should get the tools we need to keep that promise. If you are not creating value, then don't be surprised if nobody wants you to do it. But if you can figure out how to connect to change that customer, that vendor, that coworker, they're going to ask you to do it again. 
Correct. And that is what people want. When I had on my list of 14 things, I didn't have to work very hard. Almost no one picked that one because that's not what makes it the best job you ever had. Okay. So tell us about the title. Why do we need significance? Significance is meaning and meaning comes from making a change happen. And making a change happen is something that many people don't go to work to do because we've been indoctrinated by 20 years of school and everything else to ask, will this be on the test? What's the least I can get away with? How do I get picked? How do I get an A? None of those things have to do with who am I here to change? What is the change I seek to make? How will I know if it's working? But when we do those things, that is when we feel alive. And what good is it to coast through yet another week at work so you can race home and watch yet another thing on Netflix? We can do better than that. Mm. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about all kinds of things that... uh, that we can learn from this book. Um, I like that humans are not a resource and that management is not the same of leadership and, and hiring is not dating. So let's take a break and we come back, we'll dive into those concepts. Hey, Dr. Linda here. Did you know that a recent Harvard study found that exposure to just four minutes of good news each day will make you 32% less anxious and 18% more optimistic? Just four minutes. We've all got that much time to devote to our worldview and our sense of flourishing. Yes, if you make a habit of learning about just one piece of remarkably good news each day, you can be the one in your circles with fresh insights, ideas, and a sense of strength. Okay, so that takes care of the problem in our personal lives. But what about our work environments? We need to feel like we come alive there, that we, that we have meaning and purpose there. Well, enter the goodness exchange for business. For companies that want to create optimistic and values-driven work cultures, our content can give you a way to turn aspirational ideas like positivity into a concrete way of being in the workplace. In fact, employee retention and attraction may depend on your company's ability to nurture a tone of innovation, interesting collaborations, and possibility. And most importantly, the Goodness Exchange can meaningfully elevate your company's wellness efforts and benefits packages because your work culture can be offering employees something new, peace of mind, and that sense of flourishing I mentioned before, where employees' well-being isn't just a perk. It's the way we care about the individuals in our workplaces. So if you'd like to chat about infusing your culture with a tone of celebration about goodness and progress, we'd love to chat. Contact our CEO, Liesl. Her email address is info at goodnessexchange.com. Thanks. All right, we're back. So Seth, um, talk us Talk to us about some of the counterintuitive aspects of, of your insights in this book. I love to start with this, humans are not resources. I'm sure referring to the, the term human resources. So why is any of it counterintuitive? Uh, for 100,000 years, human beings lived one way, and then for 100 years, we lived a different way. And we lived the other way, the new way, because factories made so much money. 
because the deal that if you go to a room, a dark room filled with smoke and do what you're told for 10 or 12 hours a day and give away agency and humanity to your boss, you'll get paid. And we got indoctrinated that that's what we should do. Well, the first thing that factories did was they bought machines. And if you could make your machine work better, you could lower your prices, make more money, and beat the competition. But then Frederick Taylor, who met Henry Ford, figured out that if you treated people like machines, you could make them go faster too. And you need to surveil them and tweak them and measure them and push them, and they will become a resource of the factory. So we invented human resources. That's where it came from. But humans aren't a resource. Humans are the point. And now that we can't make the machines go any faster, now that almost all the robot work is getting done by robots, what we're left with is we need humans to be humans because that's what we're willing to pay for. That's what we're willing to go out of our way for. That's where the profit is and the change that we seek to make. So if you treat humans like a resource, you measure every keystroke, you figure out how to pay them just enough that they will obey you, well, then don't be surprised when the machines don't really do what you want them to do. You know, part of this is is the great resignation or what's been going on for the last three or four years where people are really questioning the work and, and the place that they're at. And now we know that 50% of people are kind of wishing they hadn't jumped ship. How does that, are we looking for the wrong things or did we make some decisions based on wrong assumptions? I think the reason that a whole generation is coming along and acting the way they are is they saw the fraud of the promise. Because in the 50s and the 60s, companies kept the promise. Mm -hmm. They said, go to the placement office. We will pick you. You will get hired. You will have a job for 40 years. You will continue to move up. You will be treated reasonably well. And then you will be dead, gone, dead, whatever. And then they stopped keeping the promise. They stopped because they were outsourcing, because they were downsizing, because they were mechanizing, because people were treated like disposable objects. Mm -hmm. And so the workers are saying, screw this. What do I need this for? If you're not going to treat me the way I needed to be treated, I'm not going to keep my promise to you. And now that we've got Upwork and Uber and all the rest of the gig stuff, and we've got AI and we've got outsourcing, careers are out the window largely and being replaced by people who are looking for the right gig and bosses who are surprised by this have not been paying attention. Mm -hmm. So that leads us to this great question about like, like management is not leadership. Talk to us a little bit about leadership in this whole big picture. Right. So this is another uh, word trap that we fall into because we use the word manager and leader interchangeably. They're not at all alike. Managers use power and authority to help get people to do what they want. The job they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. Leaders are doing something voluntary, not with authority. Leaders are showing up, finding the people who want to go somewhere and helping them get there. You don't have to be a manager to be a leader. You don't have to be a boss to be a leader. In fact, many managers aren't leaders and many leaders aren't managers. But let's be very clear about what you are in any given moment because you can't do both jobs at the same time. Either you are telling people what to do or you're inviting them to do something. That is a huge switch. So this leadership management thing is often a source of tension, but you've got some pretty nice ideas about how to use tension positively. 
So let's agree that stress is a bad thing. Stress leads to PTSD. It enervates us. Stress is wanting to do two things at the same time. Stay and go. Do it and don't do it. We're torn. Tension is a good thing. Tension is the pause before the punchline of a joke. Tension is the way it feels when we pull a rubber band back before we shoot it across the room. Nothing changes without tension. So the tension of this might not work. The tension of I wonder what they're going to say next. These are good things, but bosses have frequently resorted to stress instead to put people in conditions where they feel like they have no choice but to obey because they can't escape. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the liminal space between here and there. So I suppose in that in that space, there's commitments that we have to make, that the workers have to make, and bosses have to make. Like, what what are those kind of commitments? In well, a new I'll pick a simple work? one. I promise not to call a Zoom meeting where I'm just going to lecture at you as a form of taking attendance. If you promise to show up at the meeting with questions and we can actually have a conversation. And if I don't keep my end of the promise, you should log off the call. That's the kind of commitment that we can make to one another, right? That we can look at the danger of false proxies. We can look at this whole idea of enrollment, of getting real about what we're seeking to do together. If you don't really want to make this change I'm talking about happen, please don't work here because this is where we are going. We're not doing that thing. We're doing this thing. And that's a choice. And I'm going to be honest about what we do here. Right? So if you go to Goldman Sachs and you spend a lot of time talking about the fact that Goldman makes too much money, you're in the wrong building. The people who are there are there for a very simple reason, to do anything that's semi-legal to make more money. That's who shows up. And that's one reason why they function so well, because they don't hide it behind something else. They're very clear about why they are there. So while we're on the subject of meetings, um, you've got some pretty interesting ideas, I think, about are meetings the cause of work crisis? Is that what you're talking about? Well, I think meetings are the symptom. Okay. I, oh. think, I think that when bosses decide that they're going to need power, control, and authority, but people are working remotely, they call another Zoom meeting. It's so lazy and so easy to do because now you know you can at least see people. It's also lazy because instead of digesting what you had to say in a really well-edited five-minute video, sending it to everyone to watch at their convenience and then get back to you privately with questions, you just turned on the camera and rattled and rattled and rattled for half an hour. And then you said, oh, that was hard. No, it wasn't. It was lazy. And asynchronous, thoughtful work is really powerful. The people who run uh, 40% of the internet automatic, uh, they have 2,000 employees. They don't have one office and they don't have meetings, and they don't have email. They run the entire thing with asynchronous reading and writing culture. And this is available to just about any organization that we can say, we know what a meeting is for. It's for a conversation. And if it's not for that, please cancel it. Yeah, that com conservate, that conversation topic comes back to the focus on diversity that's in society. Diversity is, is the, most likely the only source of fresh ideas that we have. Talk to us about collaboration, because that is that is at the heart of this, this whole ideas mentality. I don't know if you heard that new hit record from the All Clarinet Orchestra, but it's likely you haven't, because there isn't an All Clarinet Orchestra, because it would sound terrible. 
The reason orchestras work is they have tubas and they have timpani and they have violin. The same thing is true for work, that there is a moral imperative for sure that we have to undo a caste system and many, many years of racial and social injustice. And teams that bring different skills together always outperform teams that are only good at one thing. Right. And so what we're looking for is to eliminate false proxies. Now, if you go to the supermarket, you're not allowed to taste the ketchup before you pay for it. That's why we have packaged goods, because the label is a proxy for what's inside. Heinz always tastes like Heinz. But when we go to hire people, we make a whole bunch of mistakes because we think that their appearance, their charisma, their height, whether they're good at uh, interviews, whether they look like us, whether we want to date them, whether any of these things are proxies for whether they will be good at their job. They're not, but we measure them because they're easy. And so it further engages us in a caste system that serves no one. So that comes to this topic of real skills. So what are real skills these days? Well, we know what the easy to measure hard skills are. Did you go to a famous college? Are there any typos on your resume? How many words per minute can you type? How many, how big a bag of concrete can you lift? These are easy to measure. And so we think that these are what are important. Someone says, well, I'm a great photographer, but I can't get hired. Well, yeah, but lots of people know how to take a picture. What's going to get you hired are real skills, which are empathy, creativity, connection, agreeableness, loyalty, sense of humor, all of the things that create the conditions for a team to do better. Mm -hmm. And the magic of real skills is that they are attitudes. And the beauty of attitudes is that you can learn them. And you could learn to be a little more honest. You could learn to be a little bit more patient. You could learn to be a little bit more agreeable. And if you can do it a little, you can do it more than a little. And so this is the path that's open to us, not to race to the bottom by saying I'm faster at being average than everybody else, but to race to the top and point out that you might cost more, but you're worth more than you cost. So does that have does that have a, a connection to this concept of, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, Seth, Kokoro? Kokoro? So I, I called... Uh, a Japanese uh, company in New York, and they said Kokoro. Okay. Um, I love semi-obscure Japanese terms. This one, if you look at the ideogram from the original Chinese, is a house and a heart. And Kokoro is that sense of being where you need to be and bringing your heart to what is involved. It doesn't mean a vacation on the beach. It means being present and creating something with meaning. And so the question is, is there an organization, nonprofit, for-profit, governmental, spiritual, is there an organization that would not benefit from people who feel that when they are at work, from people who are here to create meaning for others, who are seeking to make a change that is aligned with the change we all seek to make? If the answer is yes, that makes the organization better, then the question is, are you willing to unbrainwash yourself to get to the point where you can do that on purpose. Your your ideas on this sort of thing must come from experiences and stories and so forth. You, you've probably seen your share of the conspiracy of goodness that you heard me introduce in the beginning. Tell me a few stories from that, that have inspired you to push this 
this way of wor working and thinking about the world forward? I think the cool thing is that no one needs my stories. Ah. This is not, the work you do is so important, but it's not important because we need one more story. It's important because we need to recognize that there are already enough stories. And what we need to do is care enough to make our own story. There is no top-down solution to the goodness problem. It is going to be a foundational choice that all our culture is, is the expectation of what are things like around here. Mm -hmm. So if you can get respected and famous and rich by bullying people, firing the disabled, acting like a jerk, and showing you made a lot of money, other people are going to think that's what they should do too. Mm -hmm. But if we are surrounded by people who do things because they can, not because they have to, and who are willing to give others the benefit of the doubt, then that is going to become the standard. So you don't need more proof. You just need to decide. You don't need more time. You just need to decide. You don't have to change everyone. In fact, you cannot. The goal is to change the smallest viable unit enough that it was worth it. Maybe that's only two people. Maybe that's the four kids in the back of your class. Maybe that's the two people that you work with. It's enough because it multiplies. We are so distracted by the circus that is mass media on the internet that we think that's the way the world really is. That's not how the world is. That is social media companies deliberately making you anxious so they can get another click out of you. One of the topics that I, I love to have folks talk about a little bit is dignity because that's what's missing in the mm -hmm. internet, in, in reality shows, in our criticism of others. It, nobody seems to care enough these days about protecting other people's dignity. I wouldn't even say protecting. I would say offering. Mm. Everyone is born with dignity, but it gets reinforced when others offer it to us. So Leona Helmsley, who was a famous tax cheat and hotel owner in New York, was having lunch uh, 20, 30 years ago with her lawyer, Alan Dershowitz. And she called over the servant, she used that word, and instructed him to bring two cups of tea. And he brought the tea on saucers. And when Leona picked up her cup to drink it, she saw that there was a drop of water on the saucer because the tea had sloshed just a little bit. And she turned to the, quote, servant, held out the tea and the saucer on the china and dropped it on the marble floor and said, now go clean that up. It is not very difficult to try to strip someone of their dignity. Mm. And it is extremely powerful to offer to them instead. Yeah. I worked with Juhudi Kalimo, uh, a bank in Kenya. And I watched the chairman of this little tiny village, their division there, go from house to house and hut to hut, working with the people who had borrowed enough money to buy a cow. Mm -hmm. And the dignity that was exchanged there had nothing in common with the way Chase Bank treats you. It was, oh. I see you, Saobana. I see you, your dreams, your fears, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. I see what is possible from us together. And when we offer someone dignity, they will not forget it. How does that work when it, when you need to 
work critique in. Like you have this great saying, criticize the work, not the worker. Where's that? I'm not talking about lowering our standards. I'm talking about raising them, relentlessly raising our standards. If people are enrolled in the journey, if they are working with the leader to make a change happen, they want their work to get better. But we may never criticize the worker because that undermines everything. If the worker can't get better despite what is happening, then they should go somewhere else. Turnover is a good thing if they're not on the journey. But when we relentlessly criticize the work, incrementally improving it, someone doesn't say, I'm offended. You want me to add a comma to this sentence. They say, thank you. And that shift is only possible when we focus on the work. Is that what you mean when you say do the reading? So do the reading is one that I've been, you know, the internet probably informed more people a little than any other medium in history, but it also encouraged an enormous number of people to be only a little informed. That's true. And there's a a scene in uh, an old Woody Allen movie where Marshall McLuhan is uh, hiding behind a sign in the movie theater. Someone's prattling on about McLuhan and he steps out and says, you know nothing of my work. And that's an expression that I am inclined to use often. You know nothing of my work because you didn't spend the time to learn it. And if we're going to do things that make stuff better, well, then we better understand what's already here. Mm. There is way too much of an incentive to wing it as opposed to what really needs to happen, which is you do the reading and then you leap with generosity. That's different than winging it because you might be wrong, but at least your intentions are good and your background is solid. In this day and age of small sound bites, it seems like we've forgotten to do our homework as well. I, I'm amazed at the number of meetings that I will take with people and I'll do an hour worth of homework or, or something like that before I get there. And I say, oh, and so you've had a chance to look at the goodness exchange. And then there's this awkward, horrifying, stumbling moment. And I'd say it happens 90% of the time now, Seth. People don't do their homework where does that fit into this? Like where are sort of we responsible for the, the ground that we're walking on when we're unhappy? Well, you know, it sort of calls to mind a not very good buffet in Las Vegas because, you know, the people want to say, well, at least there's a lot to choose from, but there isn't anything on the buffet that's particularly worth savoring. And I think most of us, even people who are fans of a buffet would prefer it if that thing in front of us was something that was memorable, that was important, yeah. not simply convenient. Mm -hmm. And I can't fight the fight against convenience. It's going to destroy our planet. It's happening. But that doesn't mean you have to buy into it. And what we have is the chance to do things that are inconvenient for a small group of people who care, as opposed to racing to touch as many other people who aren't really paying attention. You know, it's not unusual for someone with 2 million Instagram followers to post a link and have only a hundred people click on it and two people take action. That's not unusual at all because the goal here isn't more eyeballs. It's more meaning, create meaning. There's a concept you talk about in the book called page 19 thinking. Talk to us about that before we wrap up. So in the almanac, which I could talk about all day, um, 
we knew that there was going to be a page 19. We had 300 volunteers and not one of us was qualified to write, edit, layout, design, fact check, proofread, and footnote page 19. And yet there was going to be one. We knew it. So how to get there? Page 19 thinking is simple. Begin. Do the reading. Write a paragraph. Hand it to someone and say, please make this better. That person makes it better. They hand it to someone else. Please add a chart. And it gets handed in hand. So every one of the pages was touched by 20, 30, 40 people. Well, the same thing is true for the work any of us do. Begin and then make it better. Yeah, I I wish we could have had a lot of time. Maybe we'll do another chat someday about the Carbon Almanac. That's how I happen to know Seth Godin is I've helped a little bit on this incredible global uh, project that he is, uh, a ship he's captaining with what now? Tens of thousands of people. No, it's only right? 1,900, but still, 19. yes, an extraordinary group. <laughs> oh, it's, well, there's that many people. What I mean, there's that many people connecting oh, to yeah. to climate mitigation and climate change oh, issue we're in over a positive a way. By that yeah. measure. Yeah. It's a world of good. Check out uh, the Carbon Almanac if you want to see more of what these side projects that Seth dives into. You know, one last question. What what would have to happen if this interview had only been three minutes long? What do you really wish people knew? Sometimes when you really think about this as a as a, a problem that could be solved, because I'm pretty sure that you think of this as a, a problem that we have a solution for, this this new way of work. What do you really wish people knew sometimes? I wish they knew that you can't make anything better in only three minutes. That we have been trying to solve whatever problem is handy by standing on one foot so we can go back to what we were doing. And nothing important ever got done that way. Wow. We need to have conversations, we need to do the reading, and then we need to do the work that scares us. We need to put our name on it, we need to be proud of it, and we need to remind ourselves we can make things better. And it's not gonna get better in one day, but it will always get better if we care enough to put the work in. Ah. That that's lovely. That's a lovely way to wrap up. Thank you, Seth Godin, for joining us on the Conspiracy of Goodness. I hope all the connections that Seth and I have chatted about to progress and new ways of thinking will carry you through your week and you will start finding all the joy and wonder in your work environment that we've started talking about here today. Take a look at Seth's book. This I, I've read most of Seth's books. <laughs> So I can tell you that he is a master of of helping us with new ways of thinking that make progress in our lives and the lives of others as well. There'll be a full article about this interview on the Goodness Exchange, where you'll have no end to the links of other works and other projects that Seth is involved in. So thanks, Seth, and have a great week. Thanks, Doc. Keep making a ruckus. We need okay. you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.